What's up, everybody? This is Justin Wong, and you are listening to the Hawaii's number one podcast, the Casanova Podcast. And welcome everyone to another episode of Hawaii's number one podcast, the Casanova Podcast. I'm your host, Mikel Casanova. I'm coming at you with another phenomenal interview. In today's episode, I've got the true honor and privilege of interviewing the man who is the owner and founder and creator of Serling Games, none other than David Serling. Now, David Serling, if you are in the FTC, you are very familiar with this man's name as he has been very fundamental in many games in the FTC, including Street Fighter and many other franchises and he's also created his own video game franchise with fantasy strike and it's the most easily accessible yet difficult to master fighting game that's out there and i think you guys are definitely going to enjoy this episode because we're going to cover how he got into the gaming industry his time in high school and college and also what led him to create his own video games and company so if you're ready to do it, I'm ready to do it. Let's go ahead and welcome David onto the show. All right, and welcome everyone to another episode of Hawaii's number one podcast, the Casanova Podcast. I'm your host, Mikhail Casanova, and I'm coming at you with another phenomenal interview. And in today's episode, I have the true honor and privilege of interviewing the man that created Fantasy Strike, the one and only David Serlin. David, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, yeah, I'm David Serlin, president of Serlin Games. I've made a whole bunch of games. Uh, I was, let's see, lead designer of Street Fighter HD Remix and Puzzle Fighter HD Remix for Capcom. Um, made a virtual card game called Kongai for uh, Congregate.com. And then I've made a whole bunch of tabletop games uh, at my own company, Serlin Games, mm-hmm. uh, such as uh, Yomi and Puzzle Strike and Codex. And those games actually feature the same characters as in Fantasy Strike. Uh, Fantasy Strike. <laughs> yeah, you can think of Fantasy Strike like that's the world. Mm-hmm. And so I've been made board games in that world. And now we're finally making the, the video game that brings them to life. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, go ahead and... Um, plug your your company and also tell people where they can find you guys on you know on the internet and social media and yeah so the new game we have uh fantasy strike you can learn about that at fantasystrike.com and uh twitter at fantasy strike and then for all my tabletop stuff you can get to that uh at serlingames.com awesome 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 well yeah let's, let's go ahead and talk about you like uh like let's go into your background, like how you got into the gaming industry, and also like what what is it about gaming that had you, you know, that what, what got you into gaming, and like what got you into becoming passionate about it? Uh, well, I've always been a, a gamer, so there's you know that ingredient to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't didn't really growing up. I didn't really think that I would make games. Like it, it's not that I thought I didn't that that I wouldn't. It's just it never occurred to me. Like yeah, I didn't I didn't really know that was a thing that. A person could do <laughs> like, it just it just seemed like 
games that are made in some you know other universe or some yeah. other <laughs> planet who knows i mean i think nowadays it's there's a lot more awareness yeah. that uh that it's a profession that that real people do it, but it was even more opaque and mysterious yeah. when I was growing up. So I thought I was going to be uh, either a mathematician or a physicist. I was mm. very much into into math and science. I went to MIT. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I went to MIT and uh, majored in math and business. Uh, and I was uh, complaining about uh, some adventure games, you know, like point and click. Games mm-hmm. like like uh, in the genre of Secret of Monkey Island and that sort of thing at the time at, at MIT and a programmer friend of mine mm-hmm. said, um, you know, we could make a game like you've got all these ideas like we could do something, and it was that was like mind blowing to me, like it was it was honestly not something <laughs> I <had> considered <laughs> until he said that and I was like wait we can like that's a thing. Uh, and it was really so we we kind of tried, but we the other team members never did anything. Mm-hmm. So nothing. So even though nothing happened there, that was really like the moment when I started thinking, oh yeah, maybe I should figure out how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man, you went to MIT like that. That is. Let's talk about that. Like, how was your time there? Like, in the process of applying for MIT. Like, were you, was it nerve wracking or what, what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely nerve-wracking. Um, it's, you know, one of the most prestigious universities in the world. <laughs> and so, uh, so, I mean, I had lived the life that you're supposed to live to, to go to MIT. So, like, I mean, I had the, I had the test scores. I was uh, team captain of our science Olympiad team. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I was doing all the right things, but still, it's like, it, it really feels like a long shot. Uh, and I applied early action mm-hmm. and uh my my theory was that boy that would be a lot less stress if i could manage to get in that way because then you don't have to deal with applying to uh, you know 20 to 10 colleges or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and luckily i got in early action <laughs> so it, it was a, a load off the experience of mit is really i feel like it's hard to explain to people because it's way different than other universities like it really is it's like its own world. Uh, so an example, I'll give you like an example that you learn instantly. Like mm-hmm. the second you get there is, um, they say, okay, so welcome. Like I'm talking the first day you set foot on the camp. School hasn't even started. You just like have arrived. They're mm-hmm. like, okay, so here's how this works. Uh, you have been assigned a temporary dorm room at mm-hmm. random. Oh, wow. At, yeah, just at random. And you'll only be there for um a week i think it is okay and then f- so for that week you have one job and your job is to go to all of the dorms and fraternities and places to live on campus mm-hmm. and see what you want to do see where you want to live you could there's nothing about it's not like you have to be in your dorm room you don't mm-hmm. you, you can you you can just be anywhere and it was it was honestly like a crazy security thing because like Nobody really knew where anybody was <laughs> during that week. And they had just instituted a policy that year where when you went somewhere else, which mm-hmm. you could you could sleep at other places too. Like you were supposed to sign in so that if parents called, the university could at least kind of say they sort of knew where you were. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, what, the, what the university was trying to do is saying like, 
look, be independent, okay? Figure mm. out what you want. Figure out where you want to live. All these different places to live have extremely different cultures, mm-hmm. okay? It's it, it's way different living at one dorm than another versus a fraternity, like even though they're all kind of near each other. So figure it out and then tell us your rank choices and then we have this complicated algorithm that, you know, maximizes everyone getting their choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that that's like the first part of being at MIT and I've never heard of that anywhere else. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's completely different than my, my, uh, college experience. Like, and that's the other thing too. I'm, I'm glad you, you, you explained how that kind of was there because like the stuff you see on TV and in movies definitely doesn't showcase anything like that for MIT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And another, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised you're even interested in it. <laughs> in the college experience but i guess another thing to try to convey the texture of it all is that Mm -hmm. it just it feels like there's a lot of opportunities there for you Mm -hmm. and it's kind of up to you if you want to do anything with them or nothing with them like um okay one time vice president al gore spoke there like okay you're like oh that wow okay so so that's just one little example, but I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going on. And then, you know, on another day, some, some Titan of their field, some like <laughs> leading physicist, it, it just happens to be there. Uh, wow. there, there was some, yeah, there were, I think there were, there was some, uh, geez, I forget what subject it might've been physics. There, there was some like very technical book that I just kind of felt like reading, mm-hmm. uh, on my own had nothing to do with class or anything mm-hmm. and then i noticed uh in the inside cover that it was published by the mit press and i was like oh wow this book <laughs> was published like like you know 500 yards from me or something what? <laughs> wow uh and then there was a an entrepreneurs club uh mm-hmm. there that i joined and mm-hmm. in that in that thing um there would be guest speakers who were like actual venture capitalists who worked in Boston what? or actual founders of companies, you know, that they'd say, yeah, but you know, back in my day we started in the garage and here's how we did it. Uh, but just to, to just be able to casually roll into, you know, mm-hmm. uh, situations like that, um, is what I mean by it's just ripe for, for experiences. If you're, if you're willing to do them. So, like, how many years were you there? And, like, did you change majors? Like, you know, most college students when we were in, we changed majors throughout our time. But, like, how, what, what was your experience like? Were you set on what you were going to do when you were there? Or, yes, yeah, uh, funny you ask. I did. Uh, I started out with uh, wondering if it should be math or physics. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, Okay, the way the basic curriculum works is that there's a few core classes that everyone has to take, mm-hmm. kind of like at, at any university. Mm-hmm. So, so there's like a basic physics class that the freshmen take. But there's another, uh, it's called 801. Everything is by numbers. Oh. And yeah, all the classes are <laughs> numbers. And even all these years later, I remember the number. But uh, anyway, normal people who attend MIT take 801. But mm-hmm. if you are really adventurous... <laughs> <laughs> and you care about the subject matter, you can take the so-called extra numbers classes. Oh. So there's there's something called 801-2. Mm-hmm. And that's like 
sort of the same subject matter, but mm-hmm. way harder. <laughs> it's, it's for like if you actually care. And I took 8012, mm. uh, and it was incredibly hard. <laughs> I mean, it was really pushing my limits. And there was a, I had a, a friend there in the class with me, mm-hmm. and I remember asking him like at the end of that semester. I said, "So, you know, we we made it through." Uh, it, what what would you say you learned like overall from all that? <laughs> and, and, and he said the main thing I learned from eight oh one two is to not take eight oh two two. Meaning you know you you do have to take a second physics class, but he he could not withstand that uh, level of difficulty for the second one. And I thought, you know what? I thought I was good at this stuff, but I'm kind of with you. <laughs> I'm going to go, you know, the math route because I, I just seem to have more natural talent for it or something. Mm-hmm. So I majored in math. Uh, and all the while, I was, like, you know, what am I going to do with that? I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was sort of wondering, you know, someday am I going to ha- have a game company maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh and I felt like I should uh, have a some kind of business background, like just in case. Mm-hmm. So what I started doing is uh, I would spend. There's okay. There's certain number of classes for your major, and then there's like kind of general. Like you just need X number of units that could be in anything. Mm-hmm. And I made my general units all be towards a business degree, just in case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I ended up satisfying both (laughs) um but okay here's something that might interest you about the the culture uh, you know you you might not think about but okay uh in the taking math classes like in the math department at mit which i did you know like that was kind of my focus the first couple years and then having to take business classes and then more of my classes were that in the last couple years Mm -hmm. it was like splash of water in the face different culture it was really it was really surprising to me and it was hard to adjust so the way i would just i guess like kind of the core thing that explains why it's so different is when i was a math student Mm -hmm. my opinion was that the teacher didn't really have the right to put me on the spot and ask me things Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you know, they can, they're the teacher, they can do anything. But, but like really my responsibility as a student is Mm -hmm. to prove that I know the material on the tests and, and on the written assignments. Like, you know what I mean? The, Mm -hmm. the, the hard facts. (laughs) (laughs) So if I can answer all the questions in written form correctly, Mm -hmm even on tests or a final, then that's sufficient. Like, nothing more than that is needed from me. That mm-hmm. was, was my opinion. So, like, I don't have to be on in class. I do have to learn and listen. Mm-hmm. But, but like, anything about interacting in class, that's all kind of superfluous. Yeah. A- and then in the business classes, it was completely the opposite. It was, like, nothing matters except for your class participation. Like... <laughs> That's the whole point of those classes. Like, w- w- the way that most of them work mm-hmm. is um, you read case studies mm-hmm. of 
things that that happened in other businesses and then you discuss it and it turns out that like all the value is in the teacher led discussions of dissecting like all the things that went into the decisions mm-hmm. you know that that company made and like why did they decide that and was it good or bad or and that's where you do all the learning so uh yeah you got to be you better have read it you better be able to answer the questions on the spot and talk about it and give informed opinions about it um so yeah way different <laughs> i was about to say i thought my college experience was rough <laughs> it has nothing on yours <laughs> oh man like what's the stress level like like that's got to be astronomical yeah it it was very stressful and uh when i was there i mean i i hate to say this but when i was there the suicide rate was at its high Whoa. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and we had to have discussions like on the top of the tallest building, which is called or not tallest, but one of the taller buildings called McGregor, mm-hmm. where a student had jumped off and killed themselves. Like, should there be better guardrails and and so on? And, and then you get into this, you get into this like, well, you know, maybe there should be. But that's on the other hand, like, obviously, that's not the real root problem. What? <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, I'm not saying that there was some kind of mass thing, but that there were any yeah, is yeah. alarming, right? Yeah. Um, so, so uh, it's it's very it's very high stress, and, and MIT knows it, so, like, I, th- I mean, they're doing what they can to give students resources and yeah. ways to cope. Uh, one, one way they, I thought was interesting, is there's a, there's a, uh, like, a helpline, mm-hmm. like a, personal helpline that you can call mm-hmm. and I thought they had a really good strategy so first of all they made their number the phone number like extremely well known mm-hmm. so there was kind of no way to be a student and not know about this number mm-hmm. it was just you were saturated it was mentioned everywhere and they would say you can call you know if you're having any if you feel bad if you're having mental health problems or whatever mm-hmm. but it's not just that you can call for any reason, and we mean any reason, literally anything. Whoa. And they would stress that, and uh, and they, it's, they said that so often that I wondered, like, are they for real? So I called them mm-hmm. and I asked them, for, what, "What's the mass of an electron?" And they told me. And I asked them, "What's the mass of a baseball?" And they told me that too. And I was like, "Okay, great, thanks." <laughs> that's the only way I interacted with them. But I thought. It, the reason I say I think it's successful is like, I mean, they broke the ice. Yeah. If, if I had had a real problem, I probably would have called them, you know, because yeah. they proved that they would talk to you no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, we'll talk to you about anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's that's crazy. I mean, I can imagine, I mean... You know, the, the stress, that, that's got to be a lot of mental stress. You know, one, you're, you know, you're a student in MIT. Two, you got to deal with the fact, hey, I got into MIT. And then that could be the family stress and the peer pressure stress and then the academic stress. Like, that's, that has got to be, you know, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it. That's got to be a complete mind fuck to deal with. <laughs> you know? And yes, you can curse on this podcast. There's no filter on it. But I'm just saying. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of challenges that that people face there. So there, 
one of the the big ones is like the um, big fish in small pond coming to a new pond. Yeah. So like everyone thinks that they're hot stuff, and then they get their ass kicked by whatever new subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, that especially happened in in math and physics, and not not to me. I I did fine in those, but. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, that was like a wake-up call. Like, oh, geez, I thought I knew anything, and and you know now I don't. Another problem. I didn't face this one either, but it is it is a very common thing. Is because people are from some. Okay, first of all, there's a lot of people that don't care about like English class, mm-hmm. you know, because they're like tech-minded. But also, there's people that are from all over the world. It's very multinational. Mm-hmm. So there's people that struggle with English. Because it's not their first language, maybe. Right, right. Uh, and, and then together, like you know, the people that that are natives but just don't care, and combined with all the people <laughs> from other countries, MIT knows that, th- like, this is a problem. Like, they they have to make sure that everyone can communicate. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's an English requirement that when you get there, uh, you have to write an essay. And from my point of view, like I'm very good at, at writing <laughs> so it was nothing is like yeah i wrote the essay and i passed but a lot of students do not pass and then they have to take uh english classes and so like that is another kind of hurdle communication hurdle that some mm. people face so there's like the you know knowing the tech and then there's that and there's a the social aspect so that one was hard for me because uh, uh, probably I'm gonna I don't know about your experience. I'm gonna take a wild guess and say wherever you went to college, I bet several people from your high school also went there. Nope. Oh no. Okay. Not at all. So basically, for me, um, I okay. So I'm I'm originally from Western Samoa, and then I went from oh. Sa- uh, Western Samoa to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, where my dad was, and then from there to Hawaii. Uh, where I'm at now, I'm, I'm actually, I live down the block from my old college, which I used to go to Chaminade University. And when I went to Chaminade... Wait, wait where is that? Is that in Hawaii or is that in... Oh, Chaminade? Uh, Chaminade? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's in uh, Honolulu. Okay, yeah. got it. So I went to Chaminade, and I didn't know anyone there, with the exception of, like, a few of my Samoan cousins and Hawaiian cousins. Like, that's just about it. But I was just, and it was something too, because I was, my last couple years of, from, I want to say like middle and up into high school, I was homeschool. And then because school wasn't a challenge for me, my mom tested me out when I was about 15 years old, going on 16. So when I did that, I'm thinking, oh, okay, I can just get a job. I can just, you know, relax. And she's like, nope, you're going to college. And then... (laughs) I was like, oh, so am I going back to Western Samoa to go to, or go to American Samoa to go to, you know, American Samoa Community College? And she's like, no, you're going to Chaminade. I'm like, where? She's like, Hawaii. I'm like, okay, that's close enough to home. So Mm -hmm. she said, yeah, we're going to get you a ticket. We're going to go out there. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're coming with me. She's like, nope, you're on your own. Figure it out. Wow. (laughs) So I went to school out here. I was... I think my freshman year I was like 16 and I was the youngest person at Chaminade uh, in the freshman class. The other people were either 18, 19 or 20 something. So I was completely in the wild, socially awkward because I did not know how to deal with 
older teenagers and young adults. And uh, yeah, there's a cultural aspect too, because I also had never dealt with people from California. And that's an adjustment. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love my California people, my California listeners that are listening. You guys are awesome. I'm just saying. It's complete. It's, it's a cultural shock going from uh, a Polynesian life to down the street from Elvis's mansion back to Hawaii, but with more people from California than anywhere else. So, <laughs> well, I can relate. It's I, we are closer there than I thought. Um, <laughs> so I was the quote unquote right age. At least I didn't have that hurdle like you did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm from California, but so it was like the reversed for yeah. me. Cause you know, I get there and people are not from California. They're from every, they're from every state and they're from countries all over the world. Yeah. So, uh, it's kind of like nobody exactly fits into this culture because it's its own crazy new thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some memories of even the first week of like of people just trying to understand each other. Mm-hmm. I remember somebody said that that uh, some particular boy and girl had hooked up, and then someone else is like, <laughs> "What do you mean they hooked up? Like, what are you trying to say?" And then there was an argument amongst, and it got like. Not an argument, but, you know, yeah. comparing notes uh, <laughs> where more and more people would, like, walk up to this and become part of it. And they all disagreed. They're like, hooking up, you know, it means to have sex with. And the other people are like, no, it doesn't. It means they made out. And then it's like, no, it just means it only means they kissed. They didn't do anything more. They only just kissed. And then other people are like, no, it doesn't mean any of that. It just means that they sort of hung out together, that they kind of liked each other. And, and, and it all depended on where you were from. Yeah. Yep. Like, it, it was very clear that, like, certain, you know, regions of the country thought one thing and others thought another. Uh, and it, another regional thing is that uh, somebody said, has has anyone noticed that all the pizza here is garbage? And then someone else was like, no, I haven't noticed that. And then several other people had not noticed that. And one other person said, yeah, I, I've noticed that. And then I was the third one. And I said, yeah, I have also noticed that. But it was only us three. So it was like three people thought the pizza was garbage. And like ten people didn't. And so the ten people were like, where are you three from? <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out we were from New York, Chicago, and California. California. And everyone laughed. Because <laughs> it's like the most cliche thing. Like three places known for pizza of different varieties <laughs> <laughs> oh man I, I i completely think you were not expecting to go into your 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 college life on this interview did you <laughs> no i really didn't <laughs> i've never met anyone that cared about it as much as you <laughs> so i'm happy to tell you oh man i just that's one of the things like with this podcast like i said like i really want to give that extra layer to the audience and 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 also for me i'm interested in learning about people their experiences how they got to where they are and you know how they think and it's just fun like you know talking to people about their college years because that's that's really our formative one of our most formative uh aspects of our lives and everyone's got a different experience for that you know and it's it's just fascinating for me to hear how you know, your experience was, I'm like, man, okay. 
I can't complain. You know, <laughs> it puts things in perspective for me. I'm like, because I, I can say this, like I, I went to college for marketing and I, I bounced around from different. The one thing about Shamanad, and this is not me trying to, to crap on Shamanad, but their expertise was criminal science, uh, criminal justice. And, you know, when I went, it was during the whole um, CSI craze. Mm-hmm. So their whole focus was just on that. They were the only college in Hawaii that had criminal justice. And then they <clears throat> got the um, the biggest nursing program. So if you weren't in those two majors or in um, uh, computer science, they didn't. I mean, they had the other majors, but, you know, the emphasis wasn't there. So when I I tried to do biology and I realized quickly that was not for me. And I shifted over to trying to do um, law, and then the law professor was a complete jackass. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to pivot somewhere else. So I ended up doing marketing just because I was good with, I, you know, understanding how marketing works, even though I'd never done it. It's just like when I understood the theory of different things, you know, how the market works, supply and demand, you know, macro and micro, uh, micro and microeconomics, understanding all that, it just became second nature for me. Like I didn't even have to try. And, you know, I went through different things that we had, like the Hogan entrepreneur program and all this other stuff. And when I graduated, I was like, man, I don't really feel like I learned anything that I didn't already know already. So I actually went, and applied to uh, Hawaii Pacific University. And I honestly, I think I got in also because my aunt worked there. <laughs> so, yeah, people, if you didn't know, now you know. So I got in there and then I went into their, their business program. And that also wasn't a challenge for me. So I started wondering, I'm like, is it the school? Is it the education or is it me? You know, and so I just, you know, with my degree in business and my degree in uh, communications marketing, I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I kind of just floated around for the last couple, for the last decade, I kind of floated around and I, you know, tried my hand, my hand at different things. And then I ultimately, I ended up in IT about six, seven years ago, I had no background in IT and then just taught myself, uh, got my CompTIA certification. So I've got my A plus, uh, Sec Plus, Network Plus, um, got my security clearance, and even in taking all that, like none of that was a challenge for me. So I'm like, something's wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. So you're still working with IT? Yes, yes. I'm a senior systems analyst for uh, uh, the Hawaii Pacific Health oh. here. Oh, so. I see. I cover four hospitals and about 44 clinics across all the oh. islands. So Wow. Okay. So yeah, that's my 15, 16 hour day job. <laughs> so in my business studies, we had to pick a concentration or focus within, mm-hmm. within the business degree. And mine was marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just hearing you talk about marketing, I, somehow it, it makes me think of this one line that one marketing professor said mm-hmm. I always remember he said uh, you're you're selling to a collection of neurons so you better understand them and everyone laughed and then he said no I'm serious yeah. 
and I get it. You know, yeah. everyone everyone has their their quirks. Consumers don't act rationally. Yeah, like you you, you need to understand what's going on <laughs> with people and brains and psychology. So I just always remembered that. It's like it's, I think that's one mm-hmm. of the things that helped me, like, because I used to work for Microsoft at one point um, when I was living in uh, Redmond, Washington, and, and then eventually Kirkland, Washington. And when I helped at their Microsoft store doing trainings for their retail stores, uh, I would always tell people, because, and, and I saw it out here when we opened the Microsoft store in Hawaii, you know, people would always try to sell the customers, like, the cheap stuff. And I keep telling them, like, no. Present them with options and do not sell from your own wallet. And, you know, even when I would have to go to the, you know, because Best Buy has their own Microsoft kind of like store in there. Mm -hmm. So I I would train the Microsoft reps at Best Buy as well as the uh, some of the cat, you know, the PC uh, HOs people at Best Buy. So I would train them and they're always like, you know, I try to just you know, sell the cheapest thing first. I'm like, no, you know, present the option because you, you, you cannot figure out how much money a person has. Like they could look like they don't have a lot of money and be one of the richest people that would come in the store and you'd never know it. Or they could look like they have a lot of money and be as cheap as humanly possible. You never know. You just present the options, listen and understand what they are going to use their device for and then try to get them the best match possible. And sometimes you can upsell them and be like, hey, you know, this is good, but if you really are curious about this, then try and use this. And it's like, I would always do, like I would market to the customer, because I, I did this one time where I saw this customer who initially came in just to get like a $300 laptop and I sold them on a Surface Pro and you know a bunch of like I think an additional Wacom tablet mm-hmm. that they wanted on the side and and all this other stuff and the person that I ended up passing the sale off to they were like how did you do that I said I could I listened to them I got to know them I personalized the experience you know found something that has sentimental or emotional value to them and they attached it to the product that they have. And they're like, it sounds like you just did psychology on it. I'm like, no. <laughs> I just listened and worked with it. <laughs> right, yeah, you just shined the light on that that's what they actually wanted, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, you know, I got one more education thing that I feel like you would want to know given uh, your your interest because it's so it was so unusual mm-hmm. and so strange uh, so this was actually before I went to MIT in my high school I took calculus and then after that uh, I w- you know I was still in high school and mm-hmm. I we ran out of math classes so uh, there's a, a local college uh, it was Sac State College it's called Sacramento State College mm-hmm. uh, that even though I'm in high school, I could take a math class there. And there were some other students in my high school class in the same same boat as me. So we thought, okay, we'll go take whatever, the, you know, calculus two over there. And that uh, that university has the rule, the very strange rule. I don't know what this, what's up with this, but high school students can do that. That's fine. 
But if the class is in math or music specifically, mm-hmm. then in those two fields, you're, you must go, physically go there and be interviewed by the head of the department to be allowed to do it. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, right? Like, <laughs> what kind of rule is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Like, it really, it feels like one of those things where your McDonald's coffee cup is like, don't pour the hot coffee in yourself. And yeah. you're like, did, did somebody, did this go wrong? <laughs> did they, did someone come up with this rule <laughs> to fix some earlier problem that I'm not aware of? Um, so, okay. I went over there and I talked to him and, and he asks, uh, so you want to take calculus two? And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, why do you think that you're qualified to do that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, because I've taken calculus one. <laughs> I'm not being a smart ass I just right. you know that's the answer right and he said well are you sure I, like, are you sure that, that you should take calculus 2 though mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I was like okay I'm like I don't get it you know Yeah. what is his angle um, so I'm like okay I need to just lay it on him mm-hmm. uh, let me give you more detail head of the department so I took calculus one and it's not just that I got an A in it. I was like one of the very top students, me, the top, top one, two, three. I don't know. Also, I became the TA for that class the following semester. And the teacher was kind of just too busy and didn't care about correcting papers. So Mm -hmm. I graded everyone's tests. (laughs) (laughs) I personally graded the tests because I know what's going on. Also, I took the calculus uh, AP test and got a five out of five, which is you know the highest score Holy. you can get. And I was I'm a tutor and I tutor ten different students in calculus, so I'm like, what do you want from me? Like you could you couldn't find someone more ready to take calculus two than I am. Like if if I if you just say no to me, what is even going on? Mm-hmm. Who is this for? and and he said okay those are all great qualifications Mm -hmm. so now what we're going to do is um i'm going to show you the final to the class that you're not going to take so it's you know i all i teach like we have calculus one Mm -hmm. so you don't need to take that because you just told me all this you know all this things in your resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to show you the final. And I'm not asking you to solve the problems on the spot. That's like a little much. Mm-hmm. But all I'm asking you to do is to read them. And then for each question, just tell me, you know, and go down number one, number two, so and so on. Just mm-hmm. say, like, easy or hard. Okay. That's it. And I'm like, okay, fair. So I was like, all right. So number one, easy. Number two, not not really sure about that one. Number three, hard. Number four, hard. Uh, really hard. I don't really know, and, <laughs> and I was surprised. I, I mean, based on my resume, shouldn't they all be easy? Mm-hmm. Like, I know the subject matter, but they were. I did not know the answers to a lot of these things. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, you, you don't." And then he asks like some super simple questions. Uh, um, Mm-hmm. Where he where he was actually asking for the answer, like mm-hmm. you know, much simpler than anything on that test. Um, things that sound like kind of the the basic um, 
uh, you know, pr- premises of calculus where you just kind of give the oh yeah of course the answer is x yeah, mm-hmm. yeah yes the this function is continuous over the interval or whatever mm-hmm. and he showed me that in each case of his questions they were very carefully worded to have like a weirdo exception that ruined everything and it, and so yeah so the point of these questions was like if you kind of went by the book you would mm-hmm. fall into these traps of going like oh this sounds like a familiar thing the answer is the standard thing but all of them required you to really deeply know what was going on to go like, oh, no, this is like a this is different. This is like <laughs> there's an exception. And, the, and most of the answers are like does not exist is undefined or something like that be, mm-hmm. because of how the questions are, are put. And he, he's like, yeah, so you, you honestly, you should know all these things. Uh, and he is not only the department head, but mm-hmm. the teacher of calculus one and calculus two. <laughs> <laughs> So after all that, he says, okay, I'm going to leave it up to you. you. If you want to be in Calculus 2, you can. Or if you want to take one from me, the hard way, the real way, then you could do that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so I took Calculus 1 again for mm. like, you know, I like lived with Calculus 1 for so long. But I learned it from him, and he was right. Like, learning from him is, like, a whole level above anything else. It was actually way harder than MIT. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that felt like I, I was swinging with two or three bats, you know, in baseball. <laughs> what it, was your average? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, de- I did really well, but it was, like, a ton of work. He would also give take-home tests where... He, he'd say, okay, you have two weeks for this take-home test. And what that means is it would take me, like, two weeks to, to take it. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> <'Cause> God. I, <laughs> yeah, like, questions that just take hours to answer because they're so complex. And that's why they're in a take-home test. <laughs> so this guy was, like, the real deal. <laughs> it sounds like it. Good God! You say that's harder than the stuff you did at MIT. What? What was that? Yeah, was yeah, he I, like sadistic with his, his homework? Right. It makes you wonder what's his deal. Well, he he told us one day that he's like, you know, um, most of my teaching career, I've been teaching graduate students, mm-hmm. and like like the most advanced students they have. Mm-hmm. And I guess he would get frustrated where he'd be like, Yeah, but don't you know, you know the thing from the previous class because they wouldn't know it well enough. Mm-hmm. And then when he would dig deeper, he would find like, oh, but don't you know the thing from the class before that? <laughs> <laughs> and he just never escaped these frustrations. He got all the way down to Calculus 1, which is like the intro class at the college. <laughs> and he's like, people still don't know the things they need to know. And then he, on day one of the real class, so I already know this, but maybe all the other students don't. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Oh, by the way, that rule about you have to be interviewed by him. Apparently, like, only I was interviewed. I think they just gave up after me and they let everyone else in. Because <laughs> I didn't hear about anyone else having to be, you know, given a second degree on this stuff. But on the first day, I think he needed to kind of establish that nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wrote on the board, like, the simplest, like... You know, two x plus five is mm-hmm. like less less than x squared minus two or so, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so tell me how to solve this. And 
it's like I mean it's algebra. It's it's not a calculus. It's like that question is the kind of thing that should that a student should have known mm-hmm. what three years of school prior roughly. <laughs> so th- that that's his whole thing, right? Is yeah. like, well, if you're here, then you better know things that are from years ago and they're way simpler. Uh, and someone kind of yelled out how to solve it, uh, and he's like, no, that's wrong. Anyone else? And then a lot of people were silent, including me. And we're like, wait a minute. This looks this looks simple, but there's this. It doesn't say equals though. It says less than. Mm-hmm. And like, wait, how does that work? <laughs> wait a minute. Like, when it's when you take a you need to take a square root somewhere in this. How? Do, wait, how does that work when you have a square root and a less than sign? And then there's like absolute value involved or something. And we kind of realize we actually don't know how to solve. <laughs> like it's it's basically like the trickiest thing uh, you can do. One of the more tricky things you could do in algebra. Mm. And so he threw that at us like on day one and, and showed us like, okay, you know, when there's an inequality, it has to be handled this way. Whenever you take the square root of a square, there's always absolute value, and you've got to split it out and solve the positive and negatives, and they're different. Uh, and that, that was like the wake-up call. Like, okay, that's what this whole thing is going to be. <laughs> it's like you got to really know what's going on. <laughs> oh, my God. That, 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 I can't even imagine that experience. Like, that. that's... Oh my god, I'd have so much anxiety if I had to deal with that. Oh. Well, go ahead. I I mean, I got one more from this guy. He's so weird, I feel like he's entertaining to know about or something. But, um, (laughs) okay, I'm going to guess you haven't heard of a thing called the Laplace Transform. You don't need to know what it is, but no. in in the, <laughs> no, it's fine. You don't need to know. In the differential equations class that he mm-hmm. taught, which I took later on, he, he did this. It, it's like, like, did you see the Karate Kid? I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah. Like yeah. paint the fence and all that. You're like, why are you painting the fence? You know, Daniel's mm-hmm. son doesn't know why he's painting the fence. He just is designed to paint fences for hours. Mm-hmm. And in this differential equations class, he would kind of come up with like a weird function that's got nothing to do with anything Mm -hmm. and then be like okay let's look at this like when you put certain things into it what comes out of it you know Mm -hmm. like are there are there rules like when you put certain kinds of things you tend to get certain kinds of things that come out Mm -hmm. and let's learn all the rules And, and then like what if you go what if you want to go backwards like if if i told you that a certain kind of thing came out of it does that tell you something about what went into it what does it tell you? What can you narrow down about what must have come into it? And we, we did this for weeks, actual weeks, where oh. nobody knows why we're doing any of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but we're sure experts on this, like, random thing he made up or, or whatever. Um, and then uh, – and we – so we also had learned – differential equations, the main subject of the class, mm-hmm. uh, he put on the board a differential equation and did, did that same move he did with me all those years ago where he's like, I'm not asking anyone to solve this, <laughs> but just could you solve it? Mm-hmm. And, and almost everyone in the class said, said yeah, we think we could solve it. And, and, but here's the trick. <laughs> here's the joke. He says, okay, 
I'm not going to ask you to solve it, but let's say you had to solve it. How much space would it take you to solve it? Like, you had to write it out. Oh, God. And, <laughs> and, and, and I answered, and I, I said, well, you've got about six blackboards up there. I think it would take all six. It's very, very complicated. And other, other, other people agreed. They said, yeah, you know, maybe six blackboards, maybe four blackboards, maybe seven blackboards. Like, mm-hmm. a lot. Okay, super <laughs> complex. And then he said, well, you know how for several weeks we've been looking <laughs> at this, like, weirdo function? Mm-hmm. Well, it's called the Laplace transform. So let me just ask you, class, what if you took the Laplace transform of this thing and it was like a joke. It was like, well, you get X plus two. Mm-hmm. Like you get, you get like, <laughs> like the simplest thing in the world or whatever. And then he's like, okay. And then, or like X plus two equals two equals five or something like mm-hmm. that. And he's like, okay, so, so yeah, you get a simple thing. And then so how long would it take you to solve that? Well, it's like, well, you just solve that instantly. You just subtract two from both sides and you're done. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's right. So then what about if you took the inverse Laplace transform to get back from where you started? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, it was easy. You could just instantly do it. And he's like, look, you just solved this in your head, actually, in just a couple steps. What? Yeah, because you only knew other ways to solve it, all the traditional ways to solve it. Mm-hmm. But because we've done weeks of work on this crazy technique, I didn't tell you how to apply it, but now you can see that it could be applied here. And like, look, you can solve this instantly, and you didn't even know it. <laughs> what? <laughs> So that was like the most karate kid, you know, I've experienced. <laughs> I mean, completely making you guys think outside the box. Wow. And the last quote I'll leave you with on this guy is someone once asked him, what is the point of any of, like, not, not of that exercise, but just mm. what, what is the point of your class? Like, why should anyone care about any of this? And he said, well, you might think that the reason you should care is because you're going to be a mathematician. Or you're going to be a math professor, mm-hmm. somehow going to use this. I, I doubt it. I wouldn't be surprised if none of you were any of those things. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I will be. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you know, probably none of you will use any of these things ever. And that's not the point. The point is that you're learning how to think. You're learning logical thinking and, you know, the patience to learn it and to mm-hmm. go step by step and to care about the exceptions. You're learning a process of thinking. And and I thought at the time, like, no, I think I'm learning it because I'm going to use it. But he was right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't use any of it. It's just a good basis of, um, you know, working in the world. I mean, yeah. it's an approach. It's. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, when you think about it, though, a lot of people, they go to college or they go to school and they learn what they're taught. And a lot of people don't learn how to think outside or, or apply, you know, common sense or practical sense along with logic to each and every situation that comes up to them. They're kind of programmed. And he taught you guys how to not be programmed. That's 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 the mark of a great teacher. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you think I mean, people I'm sure most of your audience did not care about math or you know, study math. So it's, Screw it's, them, I enjoy it. <laughs> it. It's easy to, to misunderstand the following thing that it sounds like, Oh, everything's objective. Like it's just, 
you know, there's a right answer. It's all logical. There isn't any creativity involved. Mm -hmm. Okay. In some sense, yes. But a lot of the problems that, that at least he was fond of, and I took years of his classes, they all are of the form like, there's no specific way to solve this. Mm -hmm. There's just this tool bag of like 10 or 12 different tricks. Mm -hmm. And maybe th those can solve it if you're clever enough. Or maybe not. <laughs> so you get to the point where like you he would give us a question and only the very best students could even have a hope of saying if it was solvable because to know that it wasn't solvable meant that you understood all 12 tricks in every possible application and that mm -hmm. nothing would ever solve like you have to have extreme mastery to know that the thing was not solvable it's probably then you'd still be wrong you could have been trickier with those with those techniques so, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of uh, intuition, surprisingly, in, involved in, in problem solving. So, so is it safe to say you enjoyed your time there? <laughs> I mean, that was before MIT. But, uh, yeah, I, I really – I probably was never challenged as much as, uh, as that academically. And I, I did enjoy it. It was grueling, you know. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but I enjoyed it. Like in it's, hindsight <laughs> – I mean, it's fun to be given all these difficult puzzles that you that you have a hope of solving. You know, mm -hmm. if you're just lost and drowning, I mean, that's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if you <laughs> you feel like you got a handle on the tools, then it can be fun. Yeah. And, and so I, I have to ask you, like, how did you go from you know such a great high school experience and then into MIT? How how did you end up in the gaming industry? Well, I mean, I kind of answered that before, right? The the friend that gave me the spark, and I always was a gamer, and you know, I played games all the time. Played Street Fighter. I was a getting into tournaments in Street Fighter. I won tournaments even uh, when I was at MIT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I was. I mean, and not just that. That's competitive games, but I also you know, like story games, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So I, I mean, I I just was so interested in games this is i saw that as like a separate life as like yeah. you know that's just a hobby that's not something you really do <laughs> <laughs> um but i found out about the game developers conference mm -hmm. i didn't know anything about it but i just figured well gotta be there if you know like there's no chance to be part of the game industry unless you try so yeah. i'll just see what happens and it was a lot of just really lucky crazy connections I happened to make mm -hmm. some someone who happened to know me from a, a Street Fighter tournament uh, who I talked to about the game Puzzle Fighter and how I had analyzed the game and all these thoughts I had on it and then some other person who had happened to overhear our conversation <laughs> and said hey I also heard your name from Street Fighter tournaments and I overheard what you were saying and you sound really design minded and this you know really into this like maybe you could be an intern and work for me <laughs> on game design I was like hey, yeah hell yes so that was like a totally random unpredictable way to start but mm -hmm. that was like a foot in the door and then the rest is history as i stuck with it, yeah. it you know it, it's one of the things too because I, I believe you and i are from like the same generation and it's like what people have access to now understanding or getting into the gaming industry is way different than what it was 
back then. You know, it's oh, definitely. It's, There's a lot more tools to, to you know do things on your own as well than we had. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of the things too. Like I, you know, I got to go to E3. I was actually uh, flown out there by uh, PDP uh-huh. this year, and you know, having that experience. Is just is there's nothing like it, you know. Getting to talk with different people in the gaming industry, I got to meet and have a long discussion with Doug Bowser from Nintendo, and oh, cool. you know, it's you know when I talk to other you know content creators and YouTubers who just watch the E3 experience on YouTube or watch it on you know whatever outlet that they're watching it on, I keep telling them I'm like going to the event is entirely different than just watching it, you know, getting to interact with the people in the industry you know and having the the availability of going like before i mean e3 has only been open to the public for a couple years now but before it was industry only you know and before we had you know conferences being shown on on youtube or twitter or however you'd want to watch it it used to be just regulated to gaming magazines you know and there wasn't it, it just goes to show how not only technology in the gaming industry, but, you know, how accessibility has just become such a huge thing now. You know, if you want to learn how to how to do something, you want to develop a game, you want to work with a company, you can literally find out anything at the touch of your fingertips now. Whereas when we came up, it's it was not that easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that E3 was the insider's event. Uh and and definitely what you're saying about companies like now you read the news and find out what the corporate culture is like at Take Two and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether you want to or not, uh, you know, hear about riots, scandals, yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> working conditions at EA. Um, so yeah, just a lot more is is known about that. And then on the tech side, uh, I've got engines like Unity mm-hmm. that uh, anybody can use and, and you know, start making their own stuff on a small team. Yeah, so that if there's people out there wanting to get started, um, I guess my, my advice is I'd say first you have to understand there's, there's like kind of four big disciplines. There's uh, artists, mm-hmm. programmers, designers, and producers. Mm-hmm. And so producers are kind of like business people. Mm-hmm. So just understanding project management is is the way to go there. Uh, and you, mm-hmm. even if you don't have a background, it's just having natural talent for it. You, you could, you could do well. Uh, programmers, uh, you know, learn programming. <laughs> <laughs> Artists learn art. <laughs> Designers is a tough one. So you could design uh, tabletop games uh, mm-hmm. as I've done where you don't need a team or you can uh, design video games where you collaborate with people. But if you can, just work on something on your own or with a, your own small team. Mm-hmm. That, that's just the greatest way to get your foot in the door. It's, it's to show that you can produce something at all, anything. Yeah. Uh, it speaks a lot more than uh, just talking about things. Definitely. And, you know, that, that leads me to, I'd like to know, like, how was the, you know, how did you come about, you know, creating your own company with Serling Games? Like, how did that process come about? Like, what, what, was the uh, initiative for you to do so? Well, there's some uh, irony, as you'll see, to that. So the initi- the the impetus was uh, I had worked at several game companies, and I'd also 
I've been a consultant at, at many more, so that being a consultant is extra nice, and that you get to like uh, reconnaissance wise, <laughs> you get to see <laughs> inside even more companies to see like how do they work, what are they good at, what are they bad at, what's the problems, mm-hmm. and and I, at the time I was thinking so many games that I'm seeing in development are just they're bad, mm-hmm. and it's and it's obvious, yeah. like so what 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 is going on, you know why. Why are so many of these games bad? And the thing that, you know, there's a million reasons, mm-hmm. but the thing that, that I saw recurring was that a lot of the time, it, it wasn't because the people making the game uh, sucked at it or something. Mm-hmm. It, it was just because it, it takes a long time to do it right. Mm-hmm. It takes a, you know, a lot of iteration. And if, if you're going to spend a long time there's a payroll and you've got to pay the people every month. Yeah. So that means it costs a lot of money and the amount of money per month spent is called the burn rate. And mm-hmm. so co- company after company that I was involved with um, or, you know, saw into were dying to that burn rate. Like they, they're, they're getting their game to a point where it's okay. Mm-hmm. And obviously another year would have been, you know, the way to polish it and make it all it can be. Mm-hmm. But they don't have another year. They don't have enough money. So they just release it. Uh, and that's a spiral because mm-hmm. these, like, I'm mostly talking about game developers, which is a different thing than publishers. Yeah. Uh, so a publisher, I mean, this is this is really opened up now that there's crowdfunding and, and just a new world. But in the old days, pretty much everything was like, the publisher pays the developer to make the game. Mm-hmm. So if you're a developer and you make a game that's like kind of average, mm-hmm. well, what do you do next? The answer is you need to get a contract with a publisher to make your next game. Mm-hmm. And then you're not that attractive, right? Because you didn't make an A-plus game. Mm-hmm. You, made a, you made an okay game. And so it's hard to get a contract that's going to let you make an A-plus game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're only going to get an average contract. Or maybe you had uh, two or three contracts that you could have taken on for your company, mm-hmm. but it takes time to negotiate. You know, there's a time factor there, and you are in an emergency because you're about out of money. <laughs> so maybe you had to take the worst one. Uh, and it was that kind of spiral that I, I saw as real, really one of the most fundamental reasons why a lot of the games I saw were bad, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to their design or something. It was, it was just not enough resources to make them. Uh, and so I thought, okay, how can I escape this? Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I should make something that it doesn't require any burn rate other than myself. So that if I wanted, like, let's say I got to a point where I thought, well, it's pretty good, but maybe in six months it would be better. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have to pay anyone except my own living expenses or something for six months. Mm-hmm. So I chose a card game and the card game is Yomi. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I did, so I hired artists like as a contractor, but they're not, you know, if I take another six months, I'm not paying them. They just, I just paid them for the art that they drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea was like, let's do a really, really good job in this card game. <laughs> 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 like better than, than I seem to be able to do at these companies that don't have enough money. Uh, so that's how I got started on that. And it led me to make even more card games and mm-hmm. then get more more ambitious and then make fantasy strike and now the irony is that i'm right back in the same problem because now i have a team and the main thing i think about every day is the burn rate uh, it's 
It is. That's the most important thing more than any design decision or whatever. It's how can I continue to pay the people mm-hmm. on the team? Uh, and it's really rough. So I don't know. I guess I didn't have an answer in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I will say at least, uh, in our favor, um, we reached the point where it was like, you know, in another year, maybe this could be <laughs> polished enough. And we took the, the the year. This game has been in development for four years, and mm-hmm. it just shipped just shipped last week. So we we did polish it quite a bit in that time. Nice, nice. So, like, you know, when it comes to like, you know, like with Fantasy Strike, what uh, when it when it came to like designing it, like the uh-huh. the core mechanics and. What was the what was the impetus there? Yeah, because it it seems like, you know, and I, and I believe you've possibly said this before. Like he wants to redesign the way we think of fighting games, you know, or something to yeah. that effect. <laughs> yeah. So I was lead designer of Street Fighter HD Remix, mm-hmm. and uh, when I worked on that, I had these kind of three goals for the game, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them was to make the game more accessible, which specifically meant allow beginners or new people to get to the fun part that everyone else, that all the experts were having. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean, it didn't mean to change the thing that the experts were doing. It just meant to get everyone up to that quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second goal was to just kind of add some things that were fun just for the heck of it. Mm-hmm. And the third goal was uh, to make the game more balanced at the competitive level. So it's the first one that uh, is, has kind of been the big thing here. So making it more accessible. Like what if you make a joystick motion like Zangief's 360-degree uh, motion to do his pile drive? What if you make that a little easier? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not a single button press in the game I worked on, but it is less than a 360. It's, it's, it was easier than it had ever been before. And some people that aren't really familiar with things would think, oh, well, then it's too easy. But you see, I know the very best players in the world who play Zangief, mm-hmm. uh, I, the Americans and the Japanese. I know the specific players who are the best in the world. And that did not allow them to land that pile drive move on you any time that they wouldn't have landed it anyway. They're, they're going to they're gonna do it no matter what, no matter what that motion is. Mm-hmm. The question is, is is the new clueless person going to be able to do it? Or are they going to flop around and just not get the move they want? <laughs> and so that is my philosophy right there. And it became a debate uh, amongst players who helped work on that game. Uh, because when we make a change like that, it, it's you get to a fundamental level very quickly. Like, okay, I think we should change this control motion. Well, why? Why should we change it? Mm-hmm. Be- you know, because the game is about strategy, and this doesn't really affect the strategy. It just lets more people participate in the strategy. Yeah. Therefore, it's therefore it's good. And other people say, no, the game is about execution challenges. It's about intentionally difficult dexterity. Mm-hmm. That's that's a problem that's presented to the player, and for them to solve and show their skill in solving it. it sounds like SNK game. <laughs> And I say, you know, I think the strategy is more interesting. Uh, and, and for, you know, let's be clear that those are two, compl- like, even if that's 
true that that's there's these two completely separate things on the one hand strategy on the other hand difficult execution tests mm -hmm. if you want difficult execution tests okay maybe play a single player game like ddr or something it's all <laughs> it's all about that but you see we have this really interesting strategy so can't we give that to the people can't we like democratize that let anybody <laughs> Even people that can't do a Dragon Punch motion, mm -hmm. shouldn't they still be able to participate in the strategy? So that that was my opinion, and it's what led me to make Fantasy Strike, which is the ultimate expression of it. You know, that turned up to, to 10 out of 10. Uh, and a, another very important note, I mentioned this in a lot of interviews mm -hmm. uh, about where did this idea come from, is the, the next step in my chain of logic mm -hmm. there was like, okay, so... I like Street Fighter 2, for example. I like Guilty Gear. is a really complicated game. Oh, it's I, like love, I love Guilty one, Gear. <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's one of my very favorite fighting games. I, I really like it a lot. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to play. Like, mm -hmm. it, ha it has hard execution, and it's complex, even, even regardless of execution. It's just very complex. So it's like on the far end of the spectrum, mm -hmm. but that's, that's fine. I mean, it's doing what it wants to do. I respect it. I enjoy it. Uh, can't we have some things on the other end of the spectrum? Anyway, uh, I like Street Fighter 2. I like Guilty Gear. Maybe we can take some things from those games, some you know, uh, inspiration from them, but mm -hmm. just make things not so damn hard. Yeah. Okay, so that was my next chain of logic. But then I was really strongly, surprisingly influenced by this game Dive Kick. Have you heard of Dive Kick? Yes. Yeah, it's a game with two buttons and no joystick, just two buttons. That's it. And it's so a uh, deep strategy too. <laughs> yeah, so I heard about Dive Kick before I played it, and I thought, okay, it's it's garbage. Like, who cares about it? And and it was literally a joke game in that it was intended to be a joke by the by the creator. Mm -hmm. uh, every every year he runs a tournament, and he has like a side one small side tournament that's just like a silly, stupid thing, like you know, some old game where the screen is upside down or whatever. And mm -hmm. one year he made dive kick like as a, I think it was a flash game originally, yeah, but just, yeah. uh, and that was the mystery game. So it was a joke, but people were like, Hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> so he went on to make like a real game out of it. And even then I thought, okay, I don't care about it at all. It's a stupid idea. And then I played it and I was, I played it way late too. Like, cause I wrote it off for a long time mm -hmm. to, to my detriment. And then I played it and was really surprised. Like there was way, way more to it than I ever <laughs> thought you could do with two buttons. And it, so on the, on the one hand, like you know, huge props to it, like great mm -hmm. job on that game. Uh, on the other hand, as great as it is, it wasn't something like I actually wanted to play. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I mean, Okay, I like playing it, but would I go to tournaments in it? Would I like keep playing it for a long time? You know, uh, not quite. So I respect it, but I kind of wanted more. And I started thinking like, what if you could walk left or right? You can't do that in dive kick. Yeah. Like it's very, you know, as stripped apart as you can be. What mm -hmm. if you added just like the most basic thing, walk left and right? How would that change it? What if you, instead of having one hit point, you only have one hit point in that game. You know, if you get hit, mm -hmm. the round's over. What if you had two hit points? So if you have two hit points, it's actually quite different because it, it means you can get hit and things don't reset to neutral. Mm -hmm. You know, like like I could be right in your face and recover first or I could hit and 
with a certain move, maybe I could combo, but a different move I can't combo. So the, there's all these new things that come about if you have two hit points instead of one. Mm-hmm. And anyway, you can see the the road we're on here. Like, what if we mm-hmm. add this and that and the other? And like at some, you, if, you, if you add like a, a a million things, then you get to Street Fighter Two. And if you add like a billion things, you get to Guilty Gear. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but how? Where is the line where it starts being like? I consider it like real, <laughs> like, <laughs> like now we're playing a full fighting game. Uh, and, and I had a thought experiment where I was like, in my head, I feel like there, the answer to that is you need to add way fewer things that are actually in street fighter two, mm-hmm. maybe question mark <laughs> to get, to get to the real strategy. And it was kind of this eye opening thing. Like, where my thought experiment said, you know, maybe we can get the depth of Street Fighter 2 and more mm-hmm. without without even half the complexity, with way, way less than anything in, anyone's ever done. Maybe it's wrong, though. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I had to play it to know. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to find a, a programmer who heard me talk about this and mm-hmm. prototyped it. Uh, and it, right away, it, it seemed promising, even though it was just like a terrible looking janky prototype I was like yeah I can kind of feel the beginnings of this and then we we just went on from there and we started showing like you know only trusted people and then mm-hmm. a few more a few more and as we would show more and more people they would all say like yeah this is this is pretty good this is there's like a surprising amount to this you should keep going and mm-hmm. so all along the way we were getting this feedback of like keep going <laughs> like <laughs> m- make this a thing and four years later, it's a thing. <laughs> I mean, I, it, your work is just the the work that you guys have put into Fancy Strike is just it's astronomical. And you know, I got to play you know the the alpha build. And, oh, okay. You know, uh, I, was, I believe I got the code last year. I was playing it before it released, and I was blown away by it then because I couldn't put it down. You know, and it's like one of those things where it's it's a very it's very accessible, but the layers of depth and complexities, you know, the mental games you can play, the footsies, it's it's all there, and it's just amazing how you know if you just look at it at the surface level, it's like oh okay, this is easy to get into. Yeah, it is. Try to master it. You know. <laughs> As the other day when, I, you know, you and I were playing, even though we didn't know it, but we were playing and you just wrecked me. You know? <laughs> I'm like, what? Because it's like I was playing other people and I was just, you know, clearing house. And then I came and played you and you just demolished me. I'm like, OK, I can I can put the sticks down. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to win. <laughs> you know, I, I often try to not wreck random people too bad so they don't <laughs> they don't quit so i i don't know if i if i set my rule aside and just went full force on you or 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 not i don't because i don't remember which one but yeah it's such a joke to, if somebody's like oh it's just a baby game anyone can do it yeah really can anyone win at it it's pretty damn hard actually <laughs> so to give a like the audience a sense of you know how do we do this like mm-hmm. i guess i i would explain it that there's one kind of layer here that's got nothing to do with strategy or depth at all it's just mm-hmm. it's just the very surface it's just about is it understandable what's going on even if if it were garbage underneath or great underneath that's a separate question mm-hmm. but can you tell 
what's going on? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so many fighting games, I think they're just, they take themselves for granted, the genre for granted. You know, there's so much jargon and things that have been built up that we're trying to say, like, look, it's actually a lot of weird stuff for people that are new to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how about the life bars? They are in discrete chunks. So, you know exactly how many hit points you have. You know, if you have three hit, if the opponent has three hit points, you know your jumping combo is going to do three hits for three damage. You know it's going to kill them before you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just very understandable. It's very clear. Like your super meter, the, usually the way that works, the way it fills up is some complicated set of rules, and each move you do adds some secret number of different points to it. Mm-hmm. Ours it just fills up over time. That's it. Yeah. Uh, it pa- it pauses if you're getting thrown, but that's about it. Uh, so that's I mean it's a tiny example, but when you have a hundred tiny examples, they add up. Uh, what about when you do an invulnerable move? Mm-hmm. Your character flashes white, so you can tell they're invulnerable. That 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 has been done somewhere in fighting games, but it's like really rare. Like usually you just you're on your own to know if the move's invulnerable. <laughs> uh, if you have armor, which means like if you hit them and they can still keep going in their move. They don't get into a hit a reeling hit stun animation. If the move has armor, they are blue mm-hmm. during that armored period. If a move can parry, like if it can deflect an incoming attack and hit back, it's green. If you get hit out of the beginning of a move, which is called a counter hit, mm-hmm. you flash red. If you get poisoned, you will be purple. And the, even when you're, po- the, so there's only one character that has poison, but there's a whole UI with the poison where a poison flask appears on your life bar and it ticks down over time so you can see exactly how long until you will take the next poison damage. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is about just understandability. Uh, we uh, Did you check out our uh, character spotlight videos? Where each character has their own video. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah, it's narrated by me, so I tell you Here's all the properties of all the moves of your character, and here's their basic strategy, how to get going. Uh, you know, just so you're not lost. So you know like, what's even what. <laughs> um, and we try to present that. We could have just put a list like you know, Valerie.mp4. Click, click here. But uh, made a whole nice-looking UI that looks like Netflix as if each character has their own show. <laughs> just to make it fun to use. Just so you want to use it. You know, it's, it's cool-looking. Um, I mean, I don't know. You, you, maybe that's enough to get the idea about like just everything from top to bottom is trying to be understandable and clean. Yeah. Also, clean UI. Like, uh, I don't know how many other fighting games you've played, but in general, fighting games have terrible menus, and they have the worst menus when it comes to online. Um, I actually counted uh, in Guilty Gear. Like, I launched the game, and how many clicks for me to play online? It was eleven. And that involves setting my region and sub-region and sub-sub-region and mm-hmm. going into a lobby and then a menu and then joining some other lobby. It's, it's really... Why? Why? Like, even the ones that are kind of normal, mm-hmm. uh, if I want to play you, I would first create a lobby, which is kind of a weird first step. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want to talk to you on the phone, I don't create a lobby. I just call you. But yeah. you got to create a lobby and then... <laughs> like a password and then rules about how the match is going to be and then I got to invite you and then there might be some virtual seats that we've got to sit in. Like, what is all this? So in Fantasy Strike, we did not look to any other fighting game uh, to figure out how to do that. I was like, well, you know, when you call someone on the phone, you just touch them, just go to your, your list of people and touch them and that's it. So that's how it works. You've got an in-game friends list in RUI. 
You can click anyone to challenge them. They accept and you're playing. And then the UI, there is no lobby. There is no UI that's, it's, that's just that's new. It's just the same UI as if I were sitting next to you in real life and we were playing locally. Mm-hmm. We're just put into that flow on purpose because it's simple. Uh, also, on that friends list, you can click anybody who's already playing. You can't challenge them because they're busy. They're playing. But if they're already playing, you can click on them to watch them immediately. Watch their match. Uh, it, I've never even heard of that. That's I don't know of any fighting game that lets you do that. No, uh, but that, that was that was just the simplest way to handle that. And and it's not just one match too. If I if I click on you and watch you play, and then you're done, you might play a different ranked match opponent after that, and then you mm-hmm. might might play a casual match, not a ranked one, and then you might do a friend match against a specific other friend of yours, and I automatically watch all of it. I don't have to click anything. Just this just one click to follow you and watch you, and I get to see. Every all your online games until you kick me out or until you stop. Hmm. Um, yeah, so all this, all that stuff is about just you know understandable, clean. Just the, make sure the surface is as good as it can be, and then for the depth part, I mean that, that's one of the most misunderstood things in competitive games. I think like where does it come from? Mm-hmm. It, does it come from difficult joystick motions? No, that is not. People aren't like, oh, wow, look at those fireballs that Daigo is throwing. He's never missing them. <laughs> you can always, you know, execute it. Like, who cares? Like, yes, there are some things that are difficult that the pros do and that we can appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. But that's not strategy. That's not where it comes from. It comes from careful tuning of dynamics to make sure that you have enough decisions to make and enough quality of decisions mm-hmm. just like the 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 back and forth play is like i guess the 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 strategy space the abstract space mm-hmm. of thing, things i can do versus things you can do is just like good enough <laughs> you know it's very <laughs> nebulous it's like hard to explain um but something that we something that's to our advantage here is that when we are play testing it like mm-hmm. let's say that the dynamics of a match are really bad that like only one move matters or something and it's stupid Mm -hmm. so if that's the case we immediately know because everybody can execute everything perfectly all the time Mm. like uh, nobody's gonna miss their moves it's all just a single button press there's no joystick motions all the combos are easy you're not gonna miss your combo Uh, there there aren't um, they're on purpose are not advanced dexterity techniques so if you whiff your move and I need to punish you I'm gonna do the best punish all the time Yep. And because we're all playing the real game all the time, when there's a problem with the depth, mm-hmm. it's obvious. It's front and center. And so imagine developing for years where that's the case. That's a, that's a long time to fix all that and tune it. And it's so much easier than if it were Guilty Gear. I'm not saying Guilty Gear has a balance problem. They are great. But how much harder it is when only like, a couple people in the world can do <laughs> certain things in Guilty Gear. And, like, how do you ever test the matchups? <laughs> you know? no, that's, that's very true. And um, that, that's really something, like, I, I really appreciate what, and, I mean, anyone who's played Fancy Strike, you can see the love and attention to detail, the passion that went into your game. It's there. You, you can easily see it. Everyone that I've shown it, like today at work, I was showing it to people at my job. Uh, a lot of people that work in IT actually play fighting games, you know, in case oh, the cool. audience didn't know. 
But a lot of us, you know, we go to our local tournaments. Uh, a lot of them at where I'm at, they're going to go to Evo. And I was showing them, you know, I brought my Switch. You know, I also had it on my PC. So I had one group sitting up playing it on the Switch with my two uh, Pro Controllers. I had another set with, you know, my laptop with, you know, two controllers. They were playing on there. Don't ask me why I carry so many controllers. With me. I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking. <laughs> it's a lot of controllers. But, like, we, we, we it's, it's something. Like, every day we, we play fighting games. And it's like we were just having little tournaments, just, you know, rotating in and out. And it's about 12 of us. And, like, they were just enamored with the game. They're like, man, I need this. I, this is so fun. It's so easy to get into. They're like the attention to detail is just insane. Like, yeah. They're like, how much is it? I'm like, this is the price. They're like, are you serious? <laughs> They're like, I paid full price for Street Fighter Five, and I didn't get this much. <laughs> I'm like, well. Yeah, I mean, it, it has a lot more content and a lot more features than Street Fighter Five at launch had, and it's half the price. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so about the, you know, you're talking about people playing it for the first time and getting into it as something that's... Um, Leontes, who who works with me, has mentioned many times uh, as we have demoed this stuff. Is he? There's two things he picks up on. One is um, he likes to watch very new players like lose to something, mm-hmm. and then immediately learn what to do about it. Like in in a way, I mean, that's any any fighting game has that property. Mm-hmm. But knowing that they're going to be able to actually do it. Uh, in Fantasy Strike is kind of this transformational thing. Like, you know, when they do this, you can just do that. And then the very next game, like, they're already doing it. They're they're already, like, pushing back on the opponent. No, no, you can't just play that way. And so the point is that uh, when one side can improve that quickly, like after one game, Mm -hmm. once you play several in a row, you get this kind of rapid, like, oh, I see what you're doing. No, no, I'm going to counter that. And, you know, they can really... I guess just just feel the strategy escalating like more quickly. Mm-hmm. It's not something it could take weeks you know, on another <laughs> fighting game. So he's he's just pointed that out like right in front of us like many times at at conventions where we've demoed it. Um, and then the other thing that he likes to point out is that people have attachments to certain characters, right? Like mm-hmm. you know I I'm a rushdown player or something. Like I want I want the most offensive characters and. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, totally, totally fine and reasonable. We actually mark those in the game, which I've never seen yeah. in a fighting game. Like, yeah. who's the rushdown, who's the grappler, and so on. Okay, so that's cool. But his point is that uh, in Fantasy Strike in particular, he himself, and he's noticed a lot of other people, have kind of broken out of their mold a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because um, if you had asked him before, like, are you a grappler player? He'd say, you know, no. No, I'm not. I don't play those kinds of characters. But now he realizes, yeah, because of execution reasons. But what if you can actually do all the moves for all the characters and you really can play grapplers <laughs> for the first time? He's like discovered, oh, maybe I am a grappler player. <laughs> like, maybe I am better suited to this style. I just, mm-hmm. it was kind of locked out, <laughs> you know, before in other games. Then he's noticed that in, in a few other players, too, where... Like, they're finally playing a rushdown character, but they haven't in other games. Or they're finally playing a grappler, but they haven't in other games. Definitely, man. Definitely, it's just just the the potential possibilities is just infinite in that in Fantasy Strike. And 
you know, rotating through the cast. I always come back, come back to Jaina just because I love playing a rushdown character and I love her style. But it's just yeah, she's kind of both. She's marked as a zoner and she can fill the screen with you know flame arrows to keep people away. Yep. But she has that good dive kick, so she can. I love that dive kick. I'm actually really happy with how her style turned out, her play style, because her her personality is supposed to be that she's hot-headed, over-aggressive, mm-hmm. overextends herself to the point of injury. That's why she takes damage when she does her dragon punch-type move. Um, so that would indicate rushdown. Yeah. But she's actually plays more as a zoner and is indicated uh, in, the, in the game as a zoner because... Part of her, the other part of her character is that Master Midori is supposed to have tried to tame her and teach her patience and teach her archery as a as a kid as a way to like calm down, slow down, is mm-hmm. uh, like a therapeutic thing, and that's and ends up being expressed well in her gameplay. Like she's in my tabletop games, and we've always struggled with that. Like, mm-hmm. is she rushed down? Is she not? But I think we really nailed it in Fantasy Strike where. She is mostly keep away, but she can just say, you know what, screw it. I'm going <laughs> to just go all in and rush down. And she, she can do that, too, sometimes. Definitely. I, I have to ask, the voice actress for her, is that Bonnie Gordon? No, it is not. Uh, yeah. I think it's Marie Westbrook, if I remember right. Okay. I was about to say, because I'm friends with, uh, with Bonnie Gordon, and, and she, she did the voice for um, Armika in Street Fighter Five, and I kept hearing Jane's voice I was like is that Bonnie and I, I haven't talked to Bonnie in a couple of weeks so I was like I've I mean, been meaning to ask her that because I, I know most of the majority of the cast of Street Fighter 5 I was like man that sounds familiar <laughs> the similar I guess but not the same yeah our, our DeGray uh, actor also plays Leoric the Skeleton King uh, in Blizzard's games yeah you did a great job. Definitely, definitely. Well, I'm down to um, last two questions. I definitely want to be respectful of your time. Mm-hmm, um, go ahead. So, you know, I, I want to ask you, like, how did you know, like, when you were in the the, the process of writing your book? Because you've written a book, uh, Playing to Win, Becoming a Champion. Like, mm-hmm. what gave you the confidence or the reassurance that your book was going to, you know, be great or succeed? Uh, well, I wrote, it started as an article, uh, playing to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wrote the article first and there was ridiculous, uh, response to it. I mean, it was huge. It was posted everywhere, yeah. debated everywhere. <laughs> it was very controversial, which is silly cause it's, I mean, it shouldn't be controversial at all. Um, some of that comes from just people misunderstanding it or mm-hmm. it being just a foreign concept to them. Anyway, it was a big deal, this article, mm-hmm. and, it, and it generated so much, uh, you know, so much talk that uh, I, a lot of people tried to contact me and uh, argue or ask questions or whatever. So I wrote a second article, mm-hmm. which was called Playing to Win Mailbag, where I tried to respond to some of those things. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed that, it, that a lot of people mentioned um, uh, that what about playing for fun that I, that they would accuse me of like not understanding that or not caring or something. Mm-hmm. Well, when that's not true at all, uh, uh, the article I thought was pretty clear, was very clear. It went into detail on the exact point that it's not a prescription of what you must do. 
yeah. to all to all people. It's only aimed for people who want to win at competitive games and can't. That's it. Mm-hmm. So if you don't care about winning at competitive games or you aren't having any trouble doing that, then you don't need any of this. It has no application to you. <laughs> um, so anyway, I thought, okay, people are kind of manufacturing their own idea that I don't understand fun. Mm-hmm. So I'll write a th- part three, which is all about uh, playing for fun and how that actually can help you play to win. Like, And it, it, there's many cases where in my own uh, tournament experience, I played a lot of different characters just for fun. I had no objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that taught me so much about the game, different aspects that I wouldn't have known or gave me a chance to switch to one of those characters in a tough spot in a real competitive event, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't have been able to do. If, like I wouldn't have bothered to learn them if I was trying to maximize you know, my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- th- there is, a, even when you're playing for fun, it's like that can be a long-term form of playing to win hopefully you you care about whatever your game is enough that you would want to play it for fun that's another aspect like what if you don't what if you think whatever game you're playing is garbage and you wouldn't play it for a minute for fun i'm not sh- i mean you could do that but that's questionable long-term uh yeah activity right so i wrote part three and then after these articles were kind of out there for a while i thought okay this is obviously resonating with people uh I feel like I could do a better version of like I could, you know, that, that was version one. So I could clean it up. Mm-hmm. I could, I, I could write what I've already written better, and then I could fill in a lot more. Like, like those are only some of the issues on this general topic. I could cover many more issues and and mm-hmm. put it into a book. So that was that was the reason to, you know, to do it. And it, I, I'd say it was as successful as I expected, like, cause it was kind of, it was already a thing, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it's like launching it blindly to the world. Uh, and, and then another thing for, for people to understand is that about like the whole subject matter of playing to win. Uh, it is not about me saying like, I'm a genius and I know the right way to do things. Mm-hmm. And so here it is. It, it's, that's, really not the point it's more like this there is a group of people who can win at competitive games i happen to be part of that group but mm-hmm. regardless uh more importantly i was near them <laughs> i <laughs> interacted with them i saw them on a personal level i saw them in competitively i saw how they trained i saw what they would lose to uh, you know, or how they would overcome that. I, so I was part of that culture. You could say an insider to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who were on the outside were often just very confused about, it was all opaque. Like, how does any of this work? Like, mm-hmm. they just wouldn't know how people would think. People on the inside of this, they don't need anything I'm saying. It's obvious to them. That's why I say, like, it's not me being a genius. It's just me. It's supposed to be saying things that are obvious to anyone who sat where I sat, mm-hmm. if someone else was in my spot, they would have thought and noticed all these things too. So I acted as a cultural interpreter. That's the point, is that I'm taking knowledge that one group of people has and mm-hmm. that another group doesn't and trying to explain it to them clearly, like without jargon, hopefully, like in an understandable enough way that you don't have to care about fighting games at all. In fact, I tried to use examples from other games like StarCraft and Magic the Gathering mm-hmm. uh, to show that these principles are 
is universal to competitive games. They don't have to do with with fighting games. Awesome, awesome. You know, winding down to the the last question. Okay. Um, do you feel like we're in a resurgence of fighting games? Because you know, especially for us, and you know, living through the '90s and early 2000s, there was no lack of fighting games at all. And then the American arcade scene died off and a lot of franchises died off. And then it came down to, you know, you had your staples, you had your guilty gears and your blast blues being niche. Then you had your mainstream games like street fighter Tekken and virtual fire to a lesser extent now, but you, you know, you're seeing franchises come back. You saw Soul Calibur come back last year. You saw Samurai showdown out of nowhere come out. Um, do you think this generation now is really interested in is there a resurgence would you say in the fighting game scene so yeah uh i do think that uh i'll i'll hedge it just a little bit i mean i i agree overall but uh, the note i feel like (laughs) just to be historically fair so i used to help run evolution that's the biggest uh tournament series in the country for fighting games Mm -hmm. and Every I remember that every year we would do evolution, people would say, like, ah, oh, fighting games are dying. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, they had their heyday and it's just decline now. And every year evolution attracted more people than the previous year. I'm pretty sure that that's w- true a hundred percent of years that evolution has run. I I, mm-hmm. I mean, someone could fact check that, but. I've, pretty sure it's literally every single time and it, it increased overall attendance <laughs> so what i'm saying is there's this historically been this like undercurrent of fighting games are dying that was never really true mm-hmm. uh, there there was a time that some players refer to as like the i don't know the dark times or something mm-hmm. which is which is the several years leading up to 2009 where capcom didn't really release anything mm-hmm. then they came out with uh Street Fighter 4, and there was a big explosion. So there's kind of like this, it's like fake claims of decline, but not really. Mm-hmm. And then there was an actual big explosion around 2009. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'm, I don't know, I don't have the data in front of me, but my feeling is like it increased, it was another like period of slight increase again mm-hmm. since then. Slight increase, slight increase, slight increase where people can say it's dying wrongly. Uh, and now it does, it, I'm feeling what you're feeling, that it seems like there's been a point of inflection where it went from slight increase to, like, even more increase. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, something happened. And I get, I mean, it's, it's, in a way, it's bad for us. It's not, I mean, we want, we want everyone to play fighting games mm-hmm. that we can, and, we you know, we hope to get more new players into the genre than, than, most other games can do right because mm-hmm. we're trying to be reach beyond the genre so i don't mean it that way but i just mean uh, as a developer there's just suddenly so much competition there's so many <laughs> other fighting games like the, uh, also this concept of like the being radically accessible being like you know keep the depth but make it much easier to play that was not really a thing it was like mostly unheard of there was rising thunder that, that claimed that but you know it, it didn't finish um, so we were pretty unique, and then a whole bunch of other games like came out of nowhere. And I mean, I, frankly, 
did not do that, but they claim they did. And it really muddies the waters for us. Right? <laughs> so, um, well, I won't name them, but, uh, but I just, so there's a bunch of those, mm-hmm. but then there's also a bunch of, uh, you know, the ones you named, uh, Right, there's a new Soul Calibur. There's yeah. a new Mortal Kombat. There's a new everything. There's a, yeah. right? <laughs> like there's just so many fighting games. Uh, yeah, uh, I I don't know. I I can't quite explain it. Other than fighting games are great, and more and more people are finding out about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. it's it's just something like when I, I'm looking at it and. I gave a friend, uh, one of my uh, friends that goes to our locals out here was saying, he brought a conversation where he said, oh, I feel like, you know, fighting games died off. Like, and I said, well, I guess if you're looking at it from, like, the mainstream perspective, the, you know, when we started to focus more on our JRPGs and, and shooters, like, yeah, that was a, a shift. But I look at fighting games the same way I look at wrestling. A lot of people feel like wrestling died off when WWE bought WCW. They're like, oh, it's just been WWE all these years. No, wrestling didn't die. It's always been other promotions, and there's been really good wrestling. It's just if you're looking at the mainstream, you just think of WWE. And I think of with fighting games, with the fighting game scene, a lot of people just thought Street Fighter. You know, they just thought, you know, uh, Tekken. And when Street Fighter went dormant, which they went, was a decade? For, uh, 99 was Third Strike, and then, or 98, and then you didn't? I, hmm? I forget the exact number of years, but it's it's a little less than a decade, I think. It's close to that, yeah. Was it 2000? I think, because uh, 4 came out in, was it 08 in Japan? Or, 0, or is it 09? One of the two. Oh, uh, sorry, Street Fighter Four, oh nine, yeah. Yeah, so like the. It's oh nine. Yeah, so like the 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 from Street Fighter Three, uh, Third Strike to Street Fighter Four Vanilla, like there was a dormancy with Street Fighter. You know, and we had Capcom versus SNK, one and two. We had SNK versus Capcom, SVC Chaos, and we had the EX series, and and was it Fighting Jam? Like we had a lot of. Right, and this is what I was referring to in that by that measure, it's it's the, quote, dark time, but it actually was not dark when it came to turnout at events. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it was it was growing, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you you mentioned that uh, someone might think, like, it's just Street Fighter. Okay, well, how about Smash? Right. <laughs> I mean, right. Smash is r- ridiculously enormous. How about Mortal Kombat? You know, the last Mortal Kombat, it sold, I mean, I don't know exactly, but it sold more than a million on Steam alone, just the PC version. And usually the PC version sells the least. Mm -hmm. So, like a million on, on like, the smallest platform (laughs) of the last Mortal Kombat or Injustice. uh, The last Injustice sold, uh, I I believe, also more than a million on on Steam. And that's just one franchise. You know, there's, uh, yeah, there's this so many huge fighting games so yeah the, the, i mean the genre is not as big as overwatch <laughs> it's, not <laughs> as, it's not as big as fortnite okay but somehow it just seems to keep on chugging and keep growing and keep getting more hype I, and it's just amazing when you think of like the genre is still thriving you know with all the changes in gaming how we shifted from 
arcade beat-em-ups and you know to adventure games to fighting games to people transitioning over to you know there's that whole generation of just everybody was into shooters the call of duties the halos and now you know it seems like the general population is shifting back towards fighting games and you know those of us who've been fight, playing fighting games forever we're like hi guys we're still here <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, here's here's an experience I had uh, that I I think just sums it up. So one year, it's the the only year that has ever happened uh, when we were organizing Evolution, we shared space with MLG Gaming, mm-hmm. kind of coordinated with them at the venue. Mm-hmm. So we it was like they weren't part of our event. It's just you know the space you have to figure out who goes where, mm-hmm. and we were saying like okay on Saturday we're gonna have our finals, and so. On Saturday, we have to move all these chairs around, like so, because right now there are stations where people play, but on Saturday they need to be for the audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were explaining logistics, and they were like, "Wait, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> there's gonna be an audience, and it and it like so big that it's gonna take up this ballroom, like you know." And then we said, "Yeah, well, you're running a you're running a Halo tournament, so don't you need the same thing?" And they said, "No," when people. Uh, get eliminated, they leave. (laughs) And we said, oh, well, our finals are really hype and everyone wants to watch them. (laughs) And and so uh, their finals happened and it was like like a golf clap thing going on. Like, oh, yeah, bravo. Right. (laughs) But then ours were crazy huge. I don't mean, I'm not trying to bomb on them. I'm not trying to insult them. It's just that's what happened, right? And uh, another thing they mentioned, um, one of them mentioned was, wow, your audience is so, um, uh, what's, I, I forget the, the word, but uh, heterogeneous, meaning like everybody looks different. Yeah. Like, you know, there's people from all different races, mm-hmm. all different socioeconomic classes. Yep. And I, I grew up in that. That's, so I, it's like I'm a fish in water and I don't know what it's, you know, well, why? What is your community like, you know? Mm-hmm. like. But they were saying, well, it's a lot more homogenous. <laughs> people, <laughs> people tend to look more the same than in your community, which is crazy diverse. So those two things are like shout-outs to fighting games. The great diversity we have, which I think is a really good life lesson for everybody involved mm-hmm. to accept each other and care about their merits, you know, not the color of their skin or something. Yeah. And... Um, also, that it's just really hype, and and something that uh, Tom Cannon, who runs Evolution, uh, I I think he usually still I think he still does this every year mm-hmm. during the finals, which now is in an enormous Las Vegas convention center, which is you know it's huge, mm-hmm. and there's so many people, and he will say each year, uh, raise your hand or stand up if you competed in the event, and it's really awe-inspiring. Because you get to see that most of the audience competed. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy. There's no other event like that I've ever heard of. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what kind of sport or eSport can you have a huge audience that actually competed in the tournament they're at? So maybe that's part of the ingredients of the hype machine. Yeah. It, it could be. It, it definitely could be. I mean, evolution has really come a long way. It really has. But, um, so 
what can we expect? Are we, are we going to get more fantasy strike, you know, with how well this one's doing? We <laughs> might get a fantasy strike too, you know? I'm chomping at the bits. I just want to know. <laughs> well, we are not working on Fantasy Strike 2. That's a, <laughs> a, little, a little early for that. Uh, what we really want to do is add more characters and features and stuff like that. Like uh, my tabletop games already have more characters. They, mm-hmm. they have these the same characters that are in the current game, but they also have more. So we'd really like to make as many characters from that world as possible. Uh, but, man, it's expensive, as I talked about before. Yeah. It was really um i way beyond my limit even to reach this current finish line so in order for us to actually make more we're going to need sales so so please tell everyone to please buy the game and if they do then we're going to use that money to make more content (laughs) (laughs) because that's what we want to do definitely people make sure you go out and uh, i'll leave links uh, everyone down to where you can go to the website Uh, you can check it yes. out give more information about the game i'll leave the social media links as well and definitely if you got it on if you have a nintendo switch or you you know you, you play mostly on steam or ps4 like just just go to the stores it's right there just search fancy strike amazing yep. game great price excellent value and it's just there's just layers upon layers of death you actually have an arcade mode and you know characters with arcade ending story meets. <laughs> So you know a lot yeah. of a lot of fighting games now launch without that. Just just saying, you know. Yeah, beautifully drawn as well. We're really happy with the artwork there. And the voice acting superbly done too. Oh, thank so, you. So um, yeah, and I actually have to say I lied. I have one final question for you. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Did you have fun? <laughs> what on the interview or making the game? <laughs> Both, either <laughs> or, okay, in the interview. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had I had fun in the interview because it's so different than other interviews. Like you're really interested in the the human interest angle. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to tell you about my exciting math professor and so on. <laughs> you know, and that's just one of the things, like especially for me, because English is not my first language. You know, uh, it's oh wow. Amazing. Yeah, and it's just one of the things for me is like when I, especially when I got into podcasting, got into interviewing people, I would watch other interviews that people that, you know, either I'm going to interview or people that I have interviewed, I'd see how kind of stiff and robotic or samey a lot of the interviews, like a lot of people get asked the same questions. And, you know, sometimes I'll ask the same question too, but. One thing I see with most interviews is a lot of people don't really dive into, like you said, the human aspect of the person, like into the person themselves. And that's one of the things that I I try to pride myself on, you know, my show and, and everything that I do being different is revealing that aspect of whoever I have on, you know, giving them the floor, like talk about you, your experience. How did you get to this point? And, you know, and I, I really enjoy this conversation we had. I, I don't even feel like it was an interview. <laughs> I feel like it was a conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that, that it's interesting that in some other, like I imagine some other interview where uh, a lot of it was about the game Fantasy Strike. And that would be more normal, mm-hmm. that, you know, that we just released that. So tell us even more about it and uh, how all its features work and and whatever. I mean, we did some of that, but usually that's that's like the only thing. So 
uh, in that version, uh, you're showing that that's missing quite an angle here. Because I think anyone who listened to this, <laughs> like maybe they got, you know, they got some of that, but they got so much of this other stuff that it's it kind of gives a window into like, well, what you know, what would this guy do? Like, yeah. what kind of thing would this guy make? You know, based yeah. on based on knowing all that, I I feel like I sort of have an idea that I couldn't have gotten if if he just, you know, told us the features or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, and 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 that between that and the other thing I I stress heavily is that my guess that they're comfortable, they have a good time because I, I, I value that. I find that to be really important. And, you know, to hear that you had a good time. You know, oh, yeah, I had a great time. You did great. <laughs> you know, it's just it's something that I, I, I pride myself on. That. I'm like, yes, you know, that's the goal. Make them have a good time while they're on the show. You know, put them at ease. And, you know, because most people, when I do the interview and I dive into questions about themselves, for whatever reason, it seems to throw off a lot of people. They're like, wait we're going to talk about the product oh, okay cool <laughs> you know, let's do this let's talk about that <laughs> so yeah 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 i see you, you know put them at ease right trick them into having an interview because <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding but it's like it's you know like you said uh, you want to have a conversation and then that's in, in some ways more illuminating yeah. <laughs> than the <laughs> stilted interview answer might have been yeah, he's, I, I've I've watched a lot of painful interviews, and I'm like, yeah, not doing that one, not doing that. <laughs> right, well, I hope we entertained your audience. Uh, oh, of course they will. Of course they will. Okay, great. Is, is there anything you want to leave them with before we go? No, I think we covered it. I'll just say the you know the contact info again. That fantasystrike.com is the website. Uh, it's the game is available on Steam, PlayStation Four, and Switch. Uh, and that I also have a bunch of tabletop games at SerlinGames.com. That's my last name, S-I-R-L-I-N, games. Awesome. And you guys, uh, I'll leave links. And we a Twitter, too, uh, at Fantasy Strike. We are very active on that. And at Serlin Games, too, by the way, has another Twitter handle. Awesome. And, I'll, I'll and, I, be... and mine, I'm Serlin, at Serlin. <laughs> Man, pl- plug everything. Get it all out there. Yeah, no, I'm done. You go now. <laughs> Okay, people, we'll we'll, um, we'll be leaving links to everything down in the description below the podcast, both the audio and the video uh, version of this episode. It will be available on YouTube.com slash Mikhail Casanova as well as Twitch.tv slash Mikhail Casanova. You'll also be able to catch it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Sirius XM coming soon. Uh, it's also available on Spotify, iHeartRadio, and coming soon to Pandora Radio. And also available on Launchpad DM by Podcast One. And with that being said, people, we had a great time here. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed, as always, getting to do this because I love it. And I love having guests like David on. David, I hope you would love to come back on the show again. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. I'd hey, be happy to come back. If you're ever in Hawaii, man, we're getting some. We're gonna get some lunch. I'm gonna have some dinner. <laughs> okay, it's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> On me. I just, man, this is place. I don't know. Um, I don't know the last time you were out here in Honolulu, but uh, we we've got this. Um, we got this new local spot that opened up. It's a hole in the wall, and super good food. Super good local food. Huge portions, and it's dirt cheap. And I'm shocked that nobody really knows about it. 
And as much as the owner's like, Mikhail, talk about it on your podcast. I'm not going to mention your name because if everyone knows, <laughs> you know, that's so I, I'm, I'm doing a favor by saying there's a spot, but I'm also not doing a favor to the business by saying what the spot is. So if, if you walk, if you go past university and you see, oh, my grill, don't go in there, please. That's my spot. <laughs> Maybe someday you can interview the owner of that place. <laughs> Hopefully so. Hopefully so. <laughs> all right. Well, thank. Oh, good. Uh, th- I was just gonna say thanks for having me on, and uh, you know it was all great. Uh, yeah. With that being said, people, we are signing out. Hey, did you enjoy this episode of the Castanova Podcast? Well, I'm sure you did. And since you did, and you're wondering where else you can find it. You can find it on every podcasting outlet. Yes, it includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Launchpad DM by Podcast One, and so much more. And the only thing I ask of you is if you truly enjoyed it, even if you didn't enjoy it, please leave a rating and tell us what you thought of it, what you liked, what you didn't like, and everything in between. And also, if you're looking for video formats of this podcast and many more, you'll be able to find them on YouTube.com slash Mikhail Casanova, as well as on Twitch.tv slash Mikhail Casanova, and new episodes every single Monday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, that being said, this is Mikhail Casanova, Hawaii's favorite YouTuber. I am signing out. You guys have a great one.